Good morning. You ever gotten yourself in a, a little bit of trouble because perhaps you're just like a little too overconfident in your, in your abilities? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like you cook, a, you, know, you cook a recipe and you're like, I got this, please. And the end result is not, not good. Not good. Or maybe you're driving and you're like, I know where I'm going. And after a few minutes, you're like, I wonder why all these signs are facing the other way. Because it's a one-way street, maybe. We, we, we all have those situations, those moments when we, we feel a little too overconfident. We think we know what we're doing, and it turns out, man, we are doing the wrong thing. And it's not just light stuff like cooking and driving. Like, it's character stuff, too. I love cupcakes. I love cupcakes. Uh, my wife is of the belief that cake is only for special occasions. I'm of the belief that Tuesday is a special occasion. And... Uh, how could you not love cupcakes? They're cake, and they're portable. <laughs> and so my, my, at home, my wife makes brownies more, far more often than cake. And so when she made cupcakes this one time, early in our marriage, it was like, my moment had come. It was like, cupcakes! And I'm trying to like ration these things and protect them. And we had Bethany's parents over uh, for a dinner one night. And we were in the kitchen, kind of cleaning up, getting ready for dessert, and my wife says, why don't you see if my dad wants a cupcake? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! These are my cupcakes! Uh, if Ralph wants a cupcake, Ralph can get his own cupcakes. And then there's those moments where I'm just grateful I'm married because my wife gives me this look like, I'm gonna let you think about that for a second. Because like, I love my in-laws. I mean, I love my father-in-law. They're, they're, they're great people. I really enjoy them. And it's, yeah, it's... Not okay to not be able to share a cupcake. I feel like this would have resulted in a consequence if this was one of my kids. And it's me doing it. It's like, yeah, that's not okay. Because what I'm drawn to in that moment is to think about myself. What I'm drawn to in that moment is to meet my needs first, is to care about what will make me happy first. And, and that's, that's not a good thing. Because what I need to do in that moment is not what feels natural, but the opposite. I need to do the opposite. And Jesus is going to talk about some of that stuff today as we continue our series on radical, on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, on what he's called us to and how that is the opposite of what we would do naturally. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 38. Verse 38. Jesus is talking, and he starts off in 38 saying this, You have heard the law that says punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give it to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies." Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is some radical stuff. 
This is some radical stuff. I mean, Jesus, it seems almost like he's contradicting some of the law that came before it. I mean, Jesus has, has made these big, big statements. I mean, there's some hard stuff for us to work through. But there's three things, particular aspects of this that we want to make sure we take away. That Jesus is challenging his disciples and ultimately us to this standard of living, to this standard of life. And it starts with thinking differently. His challenge first is think differently. Think differently. He begins this by saying, you've heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And if you're a nerd like I am, then that, that's known as the lex talionis. That's the law of retaliation that's in the Old Testament, right? That's true. I mean, the, the law does say that in several different places. But the way we take that and the way it's used is it's to encourage, like, validates vigilante justice, right? It's like someone did something to me, and so now I, I can do something back to them. Like, that's only fair. They took something from me. I get to take something from them. They hurt me. I get to hurt them. Like, that's the way that it's used. But this was not given to encourage vigilante justice. I mean, the Old Testament, where this law is, has another verse in, in Leviticus 19 that says literally, don't do that. It says in chapter 19, 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It literally says, no, 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 no. You don't get to use this to get even with people. That's not how this was written. This was intended as a corporate law, as a communal law. This was meant for the entire people of Israel. It was meant to give the judicial system a guideline for punishment. I think the irony is this was given so that people would not take matters into their own hands. It was meant because God understood the nature of the human heart, that it was supposed to limit retaliation and stop people from looking to get even. But because humans are humans, we misunderstand and misuse. And Jesus pushes back against this idea because he knows that it can still be used as justification for those kind of behaviors. Jesus has come, like we talked about last week, to do what the law could not on its own. He's come to fulfill the law, not to affect external change, not to just affect actions, but to bring out internal change, true, lasting, meaningful, significant change. He goes on in verse 39 to flesh that out more by saying, I say, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Now listen, we're, we're going to talk about some things. He's not saying that you just have to stand there and take whatever comes your way. That if, if your family is being tortured, you're not allowed to, to, to protect them. That we're just supposed to be punching bags. That's not the point he's making. Jesus is not coming to give us a new set of laws to replace the old laws. Jesus has come to fulfill the laws, to show how the laws point to him. That what the law could not accomplish on its own because of our hearts, Jesus has come to fulfill by changing us our hearts, by working in us. What the law could not do, Jesus has come to fulfill, to complete but he does say, do not resist an evil person. He's raising the bar of engagement. He's raising the, what's asked of us, and we'll flesh some of that out a little bit later. And he gives four examples of how not to, to resist an evil person, just to, which I appreciate because there's times where it's like, I'm sorry, what was that? I'm not totally sure what that means. So he gives us some examples, and he says in verse 39, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, culturally, being slapped on the cheek particularly the, the right cheek, that, I mean, that was a huge insult. 
huge insult. It also, you know, hurts a lot. I mean, there's that too. Like, I don't particularly want to be slapped across the face. I'm not looking forward to that. It's a huge insult and it hurts, but Jesus says, offer the other cheek too. Not just endure, not just make it through this, not just grit your teeth and bear it, but offer the, your other cheek as well. Whoa. He gives another example. If you're sued for your shirt, give your coat as well. Now, in, in this culture, you could be sued and if you had to pay a debt or, or restore something you'd done, they could take your possessions. And so your shirt, they could literally take the shirt off your back, which is a thing. But Jesus says, give your cloak as well. And that's significant because you had rights to your cloak. That was a significant garment. It, it was used as a, a, almost a blanket sometimes. It kept you warmth. It was a symbol of provision, of protection. Jesus is saying, give that up too. But people had a right to their cloak. I mean, literally, in Exodus 22, 26, 27, it says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. If, if you take your neighbor's cloak and collateral, you have to give it back that day. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? And so what Jesus is doing here is radical. He calls for his followers to willingly and gladly give up what they have every right to keep, even at potential cost to themselves. Interesting, right? It's not just give up your cloak like give up another garment. Give up what you have every legal right to keep. Willingly, gladly give that up. He then goes on, verse 41, to say, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. And there was a practice within the Roman Empire where civilians could be conscripted into forced labor. And one of the things that they would have to do is carry military baggage with them. But there was a specific requirement for that. They, you, could, you could make them carry it for a mile. And so what Jesus is saying is don't just fulfill what's expected. Go to. Don't just do the one that you have to do. Go the second that you don't. He says by wrapping this up, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Man, there's no qualification given on that. There's no conditions given on that. Now again, Jesus is not making new laws here. So he's not saying live in abject poverty because you're giving everything that you have away. He's not saying there aren't limits to this. Instead, he's saying that we're called to follow him and it's going to cost us something. Knowing him and loving him and living after him is going to require something of us. Folks, is that how we're wired to respond? I mean, think of some of the things that Jesus has asked for here. Is that how we're wired to respond? Is that how we want to respond? Let's be honest here for a moment. We're friends. No. We don't want to do that. Jesus understands that. He gets that. And what he's trying to do here is to point us in a different direction. Any Seinfeld fans? Anybody Seinfeld fan? A couple people. It's okay. I'm raising my hand. It's okay. Uh, I remember, I didn't always watch it when it was on. I kind of caught it at the tail end. But I, I remember watching it in college, just watching all the reruns. And I just love the show. And I have one episode that is my favorite show, favorite of the show. I just love this episode. And we're going to show you a clip. 
Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld gets it. If every natural instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite must be right. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here. Do the opposite. He's calling us to do the opposite, that we think about ourselves, that our brains and our hearts are wired to, to pursue our happiness first at the exclusion of everything else, and yet we are wrong all the time and we pursue unfulfilling things, and Jesus is saying, do the opposite. Do the opposite. I spent time with this young guy who had had a, had a hard life. He didn't have any relationship with his birth father, uh, it, wasn't living with his birth mother because she just was abusive and, and just horrible to him. He had gotten involved in, in abusing prescription drugs and, in, and in illegal drugs, was really doing whatever he wanted at this moment of his life. And I remember sitting with him at a McDonald's as he's sharing me with his story and, and saying back to him, how's that working out for you? He said, not well. He even laughed. It's like, yeah, not well. You're doing whatever you want, choosing whatever path you want. How's that working out for you? And he's not well. Maybe in those moments, that's God trying to draw us to him to say, let's try something new. Do the opposite. That starts with us thinking differently. But it continues with us loving differently. That's the second thing we take away, love differently. Second thing we're called to, love differently. Jesus says in verse 43, you've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, what's interesting is it says all throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. It doesn't say that. That's most likely a, a rabbinical saying at the time that, that in order to protect and clearly define what was expected, it's like, okay, I have to love my neighbor, but, but I'm allowed to, to hate people who are, are terrible to me. But Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not enough. That, that's not what I've called you to. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Except for the Cleveland Cavaliers. You're totally allowed to hate them until at least 3.30 today. That's totally okay. It's like that's accepted. Love your enemies. The Bible consistently in both the Old Testament and the New Testament challenges us by saying we don't have enemies because everyone is our neighbor. That's the picture that's painted. In the Old Testament, consistently we see the challenge to God's people to love the foreigner, to love the sojourner, to love the outsider, to love the immigrant, to love people that are, that are not from where they are because they're guests there and they're challenged to love them. In the New Testament, we see the picture of the Good Samaritan, to love those who it would seem least likely for you to love. We can't hate our enemies because we don't have any. That's what we're called to. And frankly, we need that kind of hope because if God had the, the attitude we had, if God had an enemies list, every human being who ever lived would be on that list because we've all fallen short and we've all sinned and we've all rebelled and we've all lived in some way as if we don't need him. But God doesn't have an enemies list. God instead says, I love you in spite of your rebellion. And we're called to do the same. Verse 45 fleshes that out by saying he gives us sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and unjust alike. It's, it's this theological idea called common grace, that God is the source of all good things. And so when, when we experience any goodness, it's God blessing us. And think about the weather the last couple days. That sunshine, it just feels different, right? Like I'm not an outdoorsy guy, but it just feels different when it's not like soul-crushingly cold and rainy. God gives that sunshine. God gives life to what's around us. And God does that 
for those who know him and those who don't. He continues on in verse 46 and 47, building on this idea that God owes no one anything, and yet he's still gracious towards us. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do as much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. He's getting to this idea that it's easy for us to love those who love us. It's hard to love those who don't love us. That's hard. If we only love those who love us, though, that, there's even a, a level of selfishness to that because we do that because of what we get out of it, how we benefit from it. One writer says it like this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Loving those who don't love us is hard. But that's the exact picture of what God has done on our behalf. It's the exact picture of the way that God has moved towards us. Andrew Collins was a police officer in Michigan. He was a rising star in the, in the department, in the narcotics department, and had learned some tricks of the trade for how to improve his conviction rate. And over time, Andrew became a, a corrupt cop. He pocketed cash from crime scenes and, and shared it with his partner. He embezzled funds meant to reward informants whose tips helped get drugs and guns off the streets. He learned the right things to say in order to bring out a conviction. And in 2006, there was a drug bust and a man named Jamil McGee was wrongfully implicated in this. McGee wasn't even in the car where the drugs were found. Collins, after realizing he had arrested the wrong man, he changed his police report to include McGee's name as the suspect. McGee was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Imagine that. This weighed on Collins. And eventually, he confessed. Confessed first to a priest and then to God. And then he confessed to his family and to the investigators. And he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. And his old cases were reopened and reexamined, and Jamil McGee was released. He was freed. But his life was not instantly better. He struggled. He was even homeless for a period. He had a hard time keeping down work, suffered from persistent harassment, homeless for two years. He goes on to say, I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and hurt him. He managed to find employment in a local coffee house. And one day he came face to face with a coworker, Andrew Collins. What would you do? What would you say to the man who lied and ruined your life? What would you do? Collins looks at him and says, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And McGee forgave him. He forgave him and he let it go. And in fact, he says, he says, I didn't forgive him for him and I didn't even forgive him for me. I forgave him for us. 
Collins was so overwhelmed, he said, I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. I don't deserve that. And he didn't. And yet he was still forgiven. And these men have have become close friends. They wrote a book. They've started a ministry to bring a message of hope and reconciliation to others. How was he able to do that? How was he able to love differently? God worked in his heart and changed him. It's a powerful picture. It's a powerful picture. That's the kind of love we're, we're called to have. And folks, that's a heart issue. That's what Jesus is getting here. He's pointing out that the law can't fix our hearts. Only he can do that. The law points out where our hearts are wrong. Jesus is the one who changes them. That's what he's moving us towards. Religion doesn't make us love the way that that Jamil McGee did. Jesus is what makes us love that way. Jesus has done all of those things for us. I love even this little nugget, this little detail of, of if you're slapped on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. In Matthew 26, we read, they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists, and some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Jesus has not asked us to do anything he has not already done first. Jesus has not called us to live a life that he has not already done first and enabled and empowered and and equipped us to do it. God is not calling us to something that he has not made possible for us. Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, even on the cross as he hung to die. Jesus didn't come to give us a new law, folks, but to show how that law drives us towards him. The law was put in place to protect us from ourselves, but Jesus has come to change us and make us new forever. It's the difference between treating the symptoms and healing the underlying disease. Jesus isn't as interested in dealing with the symptoms as he is in dealing with that disease that plagues our soul because he knows that you change the heart and you change the actions too. That's why he wants to see us transformed. Really, Jesus is pointing us towards what Jerry Seinfeld said. If every instinct you've had is wrong, then the opposite must be right. We can't do this on our own. All our work and all our effort can't bring about this kind of moral selflessness. We just are not drawn to that. It's the work of Jesus in and through us that makes that possible. Because what we're called to do here, once we think differently and love differently, is to live differently. We're called to live differently. Following Jesus means living differently. The easy way is not the better way. I love how this this one writer talks about it. He says, this does not mean that the disciples act in a loving way to show what they already are, but to become what they are not yet. We don't live this stuff out to show who we already are, but instead to become who we are not yet. That's the powerful symbiotic relationship that God has with us through his son and his Holy Spirit that God works in us, that when we surrendered to him, he works in our hearts and it enables us to follow him. And the more we live that out, the more he works in us to change us. The pursuing the opposite, the being willing to be different has a huge effect. God has promised that the work that he began in our hearts, he will finish. 
doesn't happen as fast as we would like it. And it's certainly not always in the ways we think we need it, but that doesn't mean that he's not right because of course he is. He made us. And here's the powerful thing, folks. When we live differently, people notice. People notice. When we live differently, people notice. When our heart is changed, our lives change with us. They can't help. They can't help changing. Knowing we are loved that way allows us to fight the urge we have to be selfish. It gives us the freedom to be different. So I want to ask you a question. As we think about this and these big ideas Jesus talked about, I want to ask you this question. Who would you consider to be your enemy? Who would you consider to be your enemy? No, I get it, right? There's not a lot of people here are in like the Sicilian mob and you have these blood feuds with people. I get that. That's, that's, that's a good thing. If you have a blood feud with someone, we should talk. I mean, that's big deal. But we have enemies. We do. Who's that person in your life that you try and avoid? Who's that person that you feel like is, is draining and you don't want to be around them? Who's that guy at works that drives you nuts? Who's someone that thinks different than you? Maybe it's your neighbor who lets their trash blow into your yard. Maybe it's an immigrant whose culture and customs are different than yours. Who's your enemy? But there's a deeper level to this too. Some of us have been hurt in very deep ways. Some of us have been hurt in very significant ways and carry with us scars and carry with us pain. Maybe your enemy is an ex-husband who mistreated you. Maybe it's a sibling who you never got along with and felt like you were never as good as. Maybe it's a parent who you feel like didn't love you. Who's your enemy? What Jesus calls us to do is not just tolerate our enemies, is not just accept their existence, it's to love them. And it's not just in words, it's in actions. We are called to actively love them. Because I think what Jesus knows here is when we actively love others, it's really hard to hate them. It's really hard to hate people that we're praying for. It's really hard to hate people we're trying to show kindness to. It's really hard to do that. We hate when we allow our hearts to get hardened. We hate when we allow ourselves to get bitter. But it's really hard to do that when we are actively looking to love someone. Folks, we live in an increasingly polarized society. There is such a need for followers of Jesus to live this out. There's such a need for followers of Jesus to go, we don't have to agree for me to love you. We don't need to be on the same page in order for me to love you. I'm gonna love you regardless of who you are and what you've done because that is exactly the way that God loves me. Imagine what things would look like if Christians lived that out. Imagine what that would look like if followers of Jesus, we loved our enemies, actively, purposefully, intentionally, reaching out to them. Imagine what it would look like. Maybe for you, it's purposefully being willing to give time to, to that person in your life that just drains you. Maybe it's looking to clean up your neighbor's trash without asking for anything in return, just doing it because it's a way to serve. Maybe it's allowing God to bring healing to those corners of your heart where you have been hurt. 
What would it look like for you to love your enemy? I read a great story this week about a man named Eric Little. Chariots of Fire ring a bell? He's the gold medal winner at the Summer Olympics in 1924, went to China in 1925 to serve as a missionary, was put in a Japanese internment camp. Things were bad. 2,000 people were forced into this old Presbyterian mission compound named the Courtyard of the Happy Way by the Japanese. The conditions were terrible. Food was scarce. A man named Landon Gilkey wrote about his time in that camp in a book called the Shantung Compound. Gilkey was a secular humanist, believed in the fundamental goodness of people, believed that we all could find our own good, didn't believe in God, didn't, wasn't a follower of Jesus. But as he writes about this, the terrible conditions, he describes the unbelievable selfishness that took place when people looked after themselves. There was no privacy. They stole from each other. They found that no amount of public shaming could get people to stop. They showed little care for each other. But what's fascinating is Gilkey points out that little was different. He said even pastors stole. They saw missionaries steal, but little was different. He was overflowing with humor, love of life. He was sacrificial towards others. And he makes this statement. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. In 1945, when Eric Little died of of a brain tumor, Gilkey said the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. Eric lived these things out. And people noticed. Eric lived differently, and people noticed. Are we willing to live differently too? If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what I hope you hear us saying is if you're searching for something and you haven't found it yet, are you willing to try something different? Are you willing to do the opposite of what got you to this point? Because God has done all this towards us first. That's the hope that we look to.